In Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 1, I'm going to need you to help me with that first slide if you could. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and he sat down and his disciples came to him and he began to teach them saying, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. And I thank you. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me, Jesus says. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's pray. Jesus, may this blessed life that you have described for us mark us more from this day forward than it ever has. That we might truly be sons and daughters of our good King. We give you our undivided attention and allegiance now as your word comes to us. We pray in your name. Amen. Well, with these eight beatitudes, these eight sayings, these eight blessings, um, Jesus has put all of his hearers a bit off balance. It's not what they or not what we would expect to hear from him. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Happy are the sad. Rejoice in suffering. Um, Jesus is turning things upside down for us. But he is clearly marking out for his followers what a life that God will bless looks like. It looks like these eight things. He is calling us unmistakably. He is calling you to live life differently than those who do not know and follow Christ. To live as in a different kingdom, ruled by a different king. And the assumption is, the hope is, that you will stick out. You will stand out if you live by these ways of the kingdom. If you live this blessed life. Not just because you're weird or eccentric. 
but because you look like Christ. And that is exactly what Jesus intends because just following, immediately following this teaching of the blessed life and what it looks like, these eight blessings, these beatitudes, Jesus turns in verse 13 where we'll focus our attention today. You are the salt of the earth, he says. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house in the same way. Let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. In the metaphors of salt and light, Jesus is picking um, symbols that are so very rich that, that they really defy being reduced to a single meaning. Salt means this. Light means this. Um, you know, just the idea of salt alone. Salt in Jesus' day was used as a preservative to keep things from decaying. It was used as a flavor additive. It symbolized purity. It symbolized wisdom. It was used in some occasions as a fertilizer. They even ground it up and put it on their roofs to keep their roofs from leaking. Um, Salt, uh, commentators have come up with at least 11 different meanings that salt had in Jesus' day. Um, Light isn't much better. It's associated with God, with his people, with the law, with the temple, with Jerusalem, with salvation, with purity, with revelation. Um, And I'm not trying to discourage you from figuring out what this stuff means, but I want you to see that Jesus is not talking about one narrow piece of your life. When he says, you are salt, you are light. He is embracing rich imagery that encompasses All that you are. This being salt and life, this is a way of life. It is how we join God in his mission, which is what we are trying to figure out how to do this year. This is the year of joining God in his mission. So this morning, rather than explore all 11 meanings for salt and the multitude of meanings for light, I want to push them together. And I want us just to think about what does it mean that we are salt and light? What is Jesus getting at? Um, There's a number of things that seem to be common or preeminent through this. And when he says that you are the salt of the earth and you are the light of the world, The first thing that I want you to see is that Jesus is assuming that there is a world full of decay and darkness that needs salt and light. 
Did you look at the paper this morning before you came to church? If you looked at the NNO, this is the headline. Gang threats scare off witnesses. This is not the New York Times. This is the NNO. And if you were to read the story, it says, a potential informant is shot multiple times in the stomach at the behest of a jailed gang member. Convicted killers flashing gang signs and threatening jurors with revenge. A murder charge dropped after the gang member showed up in court accompanied by the witnesses who were supposed to name him the killer. These aren't plot lines from crime television shows, but real-life occurrences in triangle area courtrooms where we live. On December 28th of 2008... Just a couple months ago, LRA, which is known as the Lord's Resistance Army, these rebels were accused of hacking to death 45 people in a church in the Northeastern Democratic Republic of Congo. An aid official speaking on condition of anonymity confirmed that massacre, saying that the killings took place in a Catholic church. He says, there are body parts everywhere. Inside the church, the entrance, and in the church compound. We got the information that the rebels cut 45 people into pieces. See, Jesus believes that this world is a dark and decaying place. And it is in desperate need of salt and light. Jesus is saying that the world is in desperate need of you. The world is in desperate need of you. He is saying you are the salt and the light that the world needs. You are the agent of preservation and flavor and illumination that Jesus has in mind to bring to this messed up world. You as a subject of the kingdom of heaven, are the salt and light Jesus wants to pervade the world with. See, as you live a life, that life, that will be blessed by God, those eight Beatitudes lived out. As you live that light, you are the salt. You are the light the world needs to see. So how's that going? How does that feel when you hear it said that you are the salt? You are the light. How does that sit with you? Well, Jesus Jesus is assuming that this world is a dark place and that you are the light it needs to see. You are. And it has to do with your deeds. It has to do with your deeds. Um, he says, um, farther down in, in his metaphor here, he says, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds. Praise your Father in heaven. By living out the character of your king as it came to us in those eight blessings, uh, that's how we are salty salt and bright light. 
You know, there was a survey done pretty extensively from 1991 to 2007 by Fuller Theological Seminary's School of Intercultural Studies among 750 Muslims who had converted to Christianity. And they represented 50 ethnic groups from 30 different countries. And they, had, they came up with nine um, most cited reasons for conversion to the Christian faith from Islam. I'll give you the top three. Number one, Christians practiced what they preached. The number one reason. Number two, Christians appeared to have loving marriages in which women were treated as equals. Number three, Christian-to-Christian violence was less prominent than Muslim-to-Muslim violence. And I think if you back those up, those speak to us of the Beatitudes. Christians practiced what they preached. They hungered and thirsted for righteousness as opposed to hypocrisy. They, They had loving marriages. They were meek. Christian to Christian violence was less. They were peacemakers. See, Jesus says it has to do with your deeds. How will you be salt? How will you be light where you live and work? How will you be seen? See, if you lose your saltiness, you become worthless, thrown out and trampled underfoot. What does that mean? That you'll be thrown out, trampled underfoot. Well, apart from what it means for a world that needs to taste salt desperately, it means that you will never hear the words that you were born to hear. You'll never hear the words that will satisfy your soul more than any others. It means you'll never hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. If you lose your saltiness. It has to do with your deeds. This is how we join God in his great redemptive mission by being salt and light. We live a blessed life, Jesus says, on a stand so that it gives light to everyone in the house so that they may see our good deeds and then they will, like those 750 Muslims that they surveyed, they will praise our Father who is in heaven. And clearly, Jesus intends this blessed life to be lived out in plain sight of a watching world. It is wasteful and worthless to have salt with no taste, and it's bordering on just plain stupid to hide a light under a basket. What good does that do? See, that's why we're not North Wake Monastery. For a number of other reasons. Uh, We're not... 
Unless they have nurseries in the monastery, we're not, it's, not, it's just not going to work. But we are not North Wake Monastery. Because Jesus calls us to let our light shine before men. I ran across an article uh, by Arlene Bird. It goes like this. It says, it all began as a rather simple idea, really. The Reverend G. Thornton Frank had been pastoring Third Avenue Tabernacle for nearly eight months since his graduation from Bible school. Speaking candidly, he felt that his ministry was far from the success he had envisioned when he responded to the challenge to do mighty things for God. Mr. Frank had read somewhere that Christ has no place in his plan for a timid man, and the thought stirred him. He must enlarge the place of his tent and begin to do greater things for God. So right from the start, the whole thing had worthwhile objectives. The Reverend Mr. Frank had vision, a good deal of undiluted faith, personal charm, and a winsome way. He also had a flair for promotion. How best, he often wondered, could these capabilities be put to work for God? How could they be employed in the evangelical, Bible-believing, missionary-minded frame of reference to which he was so committed? Probably, it was an innocent remark made by an affluent member of the Tabernacle congregation that put Mr. Frank on the trail of his great idea. Pastor, said the brother, I'll be 65 in a few weeks and I'm going to retire. The old horse has been in harness long enough. I'd like to find a pasture someplace where I can graze with other people of God and settle down to a rich life of fellowship for my declining years. It was gratifying to note the speed with which Frank's brilliant mind responded to the challenge. By noon the next day, he had a board of directors carefully chosen, men whose Dun and Bradstreet ratings proved them nobly qualified for such an undertaking. Within another week, he had located a suitable tract of land in rolling wooded country, long renowned for its resort climate. The price was high, but not too high for the fulfillment of the great idea. Frank's burden was for a people long neglected. The up and outs. The wealthy and comfortable, whose resources needed to be put in harness for God, young and old, were welcome. It's difficult to believe that it all began in such a simple way. The plan caught on at once, and hundreds of inquiries came in response to the center spread that Frank placed in advertising sessions of Christian magazines across the nation. The ads ran this way. Though we are in the world, it is no longer necessary for us to be of the world. G. Frank and Associates, in a revolutionary new Bible-centered community, now make it possible for the Christian family of discernment and financial means to avoid those secular contexts so apt to leave permanent stains upon their spiritual lives. And with the advertisement, actually, Bible City was born. A revolutionary concept in, a Christian, in Christian living. In bold print, Pastor Frank's advertisement spelled out the exciting details. A Christian construction firm will build your dream home on your own Bible city lot. From the moment you move into your completely equipped home, you will begin a truly idyllic life in daily contact only with men and women who are born again. Every Bible city homeowner will speak your language in matters of culture, finance, and religion. No longer need your tranquility be disturbed by the smoke-laden breath of a godless neighbor. Behind the towering eucalyptus trees that separate Bible City property owners from the surrounding terrain, you are safe from every pollution and disturbance of the outside world. Your status as a Bible City homeowner will give you the privilege of a carefully planned recreational facility at only a nominal extra charge. 
Picture yourself on a relaxed afternoon of golfing as a part of a foursome of like-minded brethren on your Christian golf course closed on Sundays. Rush your application today. And rush they did. In a remarkably short time, every lot was taken. Today, Bible City offers literally everything that the mature, experienced Christian could desire. It isn't necessary to leave the grounds for food, entertainment, medical services, or even gas and oil. It might be called the new frontier of Christian living. This Bible City concept. Nothing has been omitted that would contribute to the comfort and pleasure of the Christian life. It's the Mecca of evangelicals. As was anticipated, Bible expositors of eloquence and fame responded to the invitation to set a, spirit, a daily spiritual feast before a constituency that deserved the best. All the big names in Christian entertainment came to have a part. And missionary emphasis was placed at the core of the idea by organizing Christian tours to exotic tropical ports. In this way, Bible City homeowners and their born-again friends could visit the field and take snapshots of missionaries and their work among the natives. Many spiritual advances are to be credited to the coming of the great idea. It has brought up to date some matters in real need of overhaul. Gone are the days when the gospel of Jesus must be equated with austerity and sacrifice. No longer must a humble believer be found outside the camp. All of this has been accomplished, of course, through the strategic use of tax-deductible profits and the genius of G. Thornton Frank. This is the story of fabulous, successful Bible City. The article says, watch for it. There may well be something like it in your community soon. Now, what's fascinating to me, this article was written in March of 1963. And the editor was forced to respond with this editorial. He says, I'm writing this editorial to banish a fear, the fear of spending the rest of my life answering irate letters about the December article, The Incredible Story of Bible City. In the seven-day period after that issue was mailed, we received more letters than in any previous similar period. One letter destroyed the article point by point with biblical references. Another accused us of rejecting the teaching of other articles in the same issue. A third letter said we were mad. He says the awful truth is this. Bible City was fake. Like Gulliver's Travels, it's a satire that said one thing on the surface and another underneath. There is no town called Bible City, no promoter named G. Thornton Frank, no Christian golf course. Even the photograph of Bible City was a phony. He says, it's patently ridiculous that any evangelical in North America would support the Bible City concept. Who of us would think of confusing biblical separation with isolation? Who in the Christian church today would try to escape his responsibility as a witness? However, they write, if the Bible city concept were ever to take hold, various signs would precede it. Six occur to me as I write. One, the Christian church would spend over half its budget on local church programs and luxurious church buildings instead of on missionary work overseas. Two, Christians in large numbers would refuse to have anything to do with people who smoked, drank, gambled, went to movies, or danced. Three, Christians would utilize the fruit of non-Christian hands, Roads, police protection, telephone service, loaves of bread, hospital care, textbooks, but remain impregnably aloof from the non-Christians who perform these services. Four, Christians would plan their week so that when not at school or work, 
They could spend the bulk of their time with Christians. They would spend Sunday morning in Sunday school and worship service, Sunday evening at youth group, evening service, and after service sing, Tuesday evening at committee meetings, Wednesday evening at prayer meetings, Thursday evening at choir practice, and Saturday evening at a church social or doing something with other Christians. This program in part good, of course, would effectively squeeze out the possibility of meaningful contact with any but the church crowd. Five, Christians would take to bickering among themselves to release the energy that would otherwise be used in witnessing. Six, Christians would feel that the only proper education for a Christian would be found in Christian day schools, Christian high schools, and Christian colleges. And then he closes his response by saying, Since these six signs are not found in North America at the present time, we need not fear the noisome vapors of the Bible City concept. As the title of the article indicated, Bible City is incredible. It was a satire with no contemporary application whatsoever. Just one question. Can anybody who needs to see your light can anybody who needs to see your light there's a fellow who wrote an article um, he's an atheist And the title of his article is Why I Believe Africa Needs God. He was raised in Africa and he moved away. Came back um, later in life. And his conviction was that Christianity and authentic Christians were the only hope for Africa. Because of the change inside. Because of the light. Because of the salt they brought to a culture. Oh, that the atheists in Wake Forest would write that Wake Forest needs Christians because of what they have seen in us. They are not writing that at present. You know, I've been praying, and this is true, I have been praying for years for somebody to step up and lead our church in reaching out to the poor in our community. For somebody to step up And help us be salt and light in the darkest corners of the community. And um, I think in in his perfect timing, uh, God has raised up Ben Wall to lead our church in these ministries. Ben is volunteering to be what he likes to call our social justice minister. And he's just getting started, and unless we pray real hard, he's going to leave this summer to go do his doctorate in some godforsaken place like Mississippi or somewhere like that. Um, But in the meantime, he is creating a flurry of light. And just one example of what 
is coming up through uh, Ben's agitation and this particular one through the vision of Mark and Marina Davini is a ministry called Feed that's going to be starting at North Wake in the very near future. It's going to take place in the old apartment in the back of Building 2, which will be gutted for a comprehensive food ministry that provides everyday food necessities to those in need within the local community and church. With so many people out of work, this is beautiful. And he's got a thing called the Local Dish, which is a food pantry open twice a month uh, to the local community. He's got a thing called Refreshment, um, that's uh, a similar ministry to people within the North Wake family. He's got a thing called At the Drive-In that's a mobile food ministry that goes around and takes food to people in the community. The market is a farmer's market that's going to spring up on our property when the weather improves. I mean, um, it's just a, it's a beautiful expression of being salt and light in our community. What does it mean for you Honestly, what does it mean for you and your family to be salt and light? Where you live and where you work, in our community, what does it mean? You are the salt of the earth, Jesus says. You are the light of the world. So I hope that today, after the services, as you're snowed in, that you will think long and hard about what it means for you. What does it really mean for you to be salt and light? Now, that portion of our text today looks back at the Beatitudes we've been teaching. I'm going to step just for a moment and, and do an introduction to what we're going to teach in the weeks that are ahead. Um, and that's in the, the next a couple of verses. Jesus goes on to say, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. It's his way of talking about the Old Testament. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. One of my most, one of the most helpful commentators on the Bible that I resource often is a man named D.A. Carson, and he has written uh, two commentaries on this section of Scripture, and so I happily turn to them this week to be greeted by the comment that these verses are among the most difficult verses in all the Bible. <laughs> Thank you, D.A. Carson. See, Jesus has begun to teach with an authority that is unnerving to people. It's different than any of the teaching that was going on in Jesus' days, as you're going to see in the next several weeks very vividly. He's about to tackle head-on in the next few verses um, teaching that has grown up around the Old Testament but has failed to teach the Old Testament faithfully. And Jesus uses this phrase. You'll hear it over and over and over in the weeks that are ahead. You have heard it said, but I say to you. You have heard it said, Jesus says, but I say to you. And he teaches with an authority that is upsetting everything these people have been taught. And Jesus wants his hearers to know that he is in no way abandoning the teaching of the Old Testament. It's not what he's doing. 
Nothing could be further from the truth. He is not abolishing it, he says. He is fulfilling it. What's the difference between abolishing and fulfilling? Um, Think of it this way. Imagine a family business. That is the best that a family business could be. Family values, community-oriented, successful, delightful to the employees and to customers alike. But there comes a day when the head of that family business passes on. He dies. And in one scenario, that business is sold to a multinational corporation who needs that business in order to write it off as a loss, who will let it fail and lay off the entire workforce and then bulldoze the buildings to erect something entirely different. That businessman has just abolished the family business in order to erect something totally new. Imagine a second scenario where when the, when the patriarch of this family business dies, he passes it on to his son, who's been carefully groomed to run that business, who continues the values and takes the business to the next step in the 20-year plan that was laid out by his father. He expands the facilities, yes, but he values the historic architecture, preserves the core of the industry, and he fulfills the business plan of his father. He doesn't abolish it and start over. He fulfills it. You remember last year, all of last year, we were talking about the Bible as a drama in six acts. And the Old Testament were three acts. Remember that? Act one was creation. Act two is uncreation, when the world was marred by sin, the fall. But act three, which was like the entire Old Testament, virtually, except for the first three or four chapters, is getting ready for the king. That's what it's about. It's making ready for the team, the, re- the king. The rest of the Old Testament is about that. In fact, you could make a case that the entire Old Testament is getting ready for the king so that when Act 4 came along, the New Testament started, at last, it's the coming of the king and his kingdom. It's the fulfillment of everything the Old Testament was looking forward to. The coming of the king. Jesus fulfills the predictions and the teaching and the hopes of the Old Testament. And just real practically, Jesus is giving a tremendous personal endorsement, full and without reservation, of the Old Testament. So you really ought to read it. He continues in verse 19, says, Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Um, This is a very difficult... uh, teaching to get your hands around, especially when you see things like this. In the book of Leviticus, it says you must distinguish between the unclean and the clean, between living creatures that may be eaten and those that may not be eaten. Jesus later would say, it doesn't go into his heart, but into his stomach, talking about food, then out of his body. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. So on the one hand, we have the Old Testament saying some foods are not clean, and in the New Testament, Jesus comes along and says all foods are clean. 
clearly, there's a sense in which we are no longer under the Old Testament law in the same way as people of the Old Testament were. But yet Jesus is saying that he has not abolished it. He's fulfilled it. His teaching captures it all and brings it to us fully. And while commentators furiously disagree here on exactly how this works, the sense seems to be that Jesus' teaching fulfills the Old Testament. Donald Hagner put it this way. He says, if Jesus is what the law and the prophets point to, then his exposition of the law is absolutely true. And it's as though his teaching satisfies every minute aspect of the law that so worried the Pharisees. So we don't dump the Old Testament because we have the new. Though our required obedience to specific commands of the Old Testament ceremonial law has changed, the Old Testament is still a treasured revelation of God. It's the Word of God. It shows us what kind of God we have and what kind of people we're supposed to be. The book of Leviticus is probably one of the top two weirdest books in the Bible. Okay, maybe Ezekiel might edge it out. But I guarantee you, you read, read the book of Leviticus and you will get a sense for the holiness of God and the holiness he requires of you like nowhere else in the Bible. Um, Jesus urges us Honor the Old Testament as we obey its fulfillment in his own teaching that unfolds in the New Testament. And there's a special warning for those who are teachers here. That your teaching must call people to a love and reverence of the Old Testament. Well, Jesus closes um, this section out by saying that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. And I don't really have time to explore that fully this morning, but let's just say that that's not a righteousness that comes from us. It's a righteousness that comes to us as a gift through Christ. The New Testament's clear about this. It says it's because of Jesus that you are, it's because of him, excuse me, that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so this morning as we close our service with the celebration of the Lord's table, we come with thankful hearts for the grace that God has given us in Christ. That we are declared righteous based on what Christ has done on our behalf. That we can find in him the grace we need to change to live righteous lives as salt and light. And so we come this morning to the table worshiping him for the righteousness that he brings to us. Also we come this morning in obedience to his command. And I'd suggest this morning also that as you come to the table as an act of worship... You might be committing to him to be salt and light, to obey the prompting that he's given you this morning, 
to live a blessed life, to be, to be more merciful, to be more meek, to be pure in heart. Let's pray together as we approach the Lord's Supper. Lord Jesus, it's with uh, thankful hearts. Just more than that, it's desperately thankful hearts this morning that we come to this table and we remember that it's not on the basis of our righteousness that we'll enter your kingdom, but yours which you give to us, which you have become for us. We remember this morning together as your people that night in which you would betrayed when you took bread and you broke it and you gave it to your disciples saying this is my body which is broken for you in like fashion Lord we remember this morning the cup that you gave us which held your blood symbolic of the new covenant which washes away our sins and allows us to stand righteous before you Jesus, with these acts of obedience that we come to the table bearing, we worship you and we desperately thank you. And we pray in your name. Amen. The table is open this morning to anyone who's a follower of Christ, who's walking in fellowship with him. If you're not yet a follower of Christ, or you're not yet willing this morning to repent of your sin, then you have more important things to do before you come to this table and that is to turn, to repent of that and come to Christ with open hands and a clean heart.